Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Anybody spiritually hungry this morning? Man, we have a, we have a great feast before us. And the, the awesome thing about God's Word is um, it doesn't matter how many times you've read a passage. It doesn't matter um, what the passage is. It's a feast in and of itself. And so this morning, we are going to continue to feast on... Luke chapter 16, if you have a Bible, turn with me there. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll make sure you get one. We want you guys to have the Word of God in your, in your lap. Uh, if you have a device, you can, you know, whatever, use an app or whatever you want. Just uh, um, not Facebook preferably, but you can use a Bible app. Uh, and, and, you know, you don't have to tweet stuff, but, but uh, you can definitely get in the Word with us this morning. So Luke chapter 16 and uh, we're, we're continuing the study of the life of the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And uh, we find ourselves in Luke 16. Last week, we went through the first 13 verses where we found Jesus using this uh, negative example of a, a man who was a poor manager and he was going to lose his, his job. And so he became a shrewd businessman at that moment and was preparing himself for the kingdom. And Jesus used that example to say that you and I are to be looking forward to the future, that we should, be, we should be investing in the future and not so much in the now. And, and so the way we do that is all the resources that God has given us and whatnot, we invest those things in kingdom things because kingdom things are things that will last forever. And so that's what Jesus was talking about. And if you remember, we got to verse 13 where he said, oh, by the way, and he's talking to his disciples. So that means if you're in Christ, he was talking to you as well as his disciples back then. And he said... Here's the warning. You can't serve two masters. You, you, will, you can't serve God and money. And so if, if you know, wealth is your ambition, that will be your God. But, but, but the Lord was telling his disciples, be careful with that because those things are incredibly valuable for the kingdom. You can use them for the kingdom, but they, are, they can be a trap in and of themselves. And so we don't want to ever serve uh, the blessings of God, but we want to serve the God of the blessings, amen? And so when he blesses us with wealth or whatever it might be, finances or, or stuff, things, we want to use those things for his honor and glory. That's why he blessed you with them. You are the steward of those things. And so that's what Jesus is talking about. Now, as we move on in verses 14 through 18 this morning, we see a response from those who don't think Jesus has a clue about this subject. Now, Maybe you were there. Maybe you don't think Jesus has a clue about this subject, but he does, doesn't he? He knows all about this subject. In fact, he knows so intricately about this subject that he speaks right into the hearts of people who need to hear this message about money, about the idea of making wealth your primary focus. So he, he, he addresses some things that are going on in the heart. Stand with me, if you would, please. And we're going to read. We're going to just grab it in verse 1. We want to keep it in context. And we want to get, wrap our minds around what Jesus is speaking to the, 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 uh, the Pharisees now about. So Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 1, he said, He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So 
Summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into, into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will uh, be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Here's our text this morning. Verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all of these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife who marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a, a, marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. And Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning, for the truth that it brings into our lives. Lord, let it not fall on deaf ears this morning. Father, help us to see that you have something to say to every one of us this morning. Even if we are managing our stuff well, Lord, there is something that you want to speak into our hearts. Help us to hear your word this morning. May we be obedient to your spirit as you lead us now. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. How many of you would agree that rebellion is in the heart of every man, woman, and child? Anybody agree with that? That is absolutely a true statement. It's, it's formed and fashioned in our DNA. It's, it happened at the fall of mankind. Rebellion entered man, and that has been passed on from generation to generation to generation, and it will continue to be passed on all the way through the millennial kingdom. There will be rebellion because flesh will still exist. It won't be until the flesh is gone that rebellion will be completely removed from our hearts. So when we transition into heaven and we are given a heavenly body, that rebellion is removed. We no longer have to contend with the flesh. But while we are here on earth, even as believers, we have to be careful because we are rebellious at heart. God has given us a new heart for sure, and he's given us a new desire. He has filled us with a new life, the Bible says, and we're called to walk in that newness of life. But as Paul would say, there is a body of death we're attached to. That body of death is the flesh. And the flesh is still uh, as much alive and well in your life as you will allow it to be. Jesus Christ came to set you free from the law of sin and death, but you give it its power in your life 
as a believer. And so uh, until we go to home to glory, we're going to have this battle in our hearts. There will be a rebellion in our hearts. Now, I can just illustrate this real quickly. How many of you went to the gas station on Friday or Saturday? Did anybody fill their cars up on Friday or Saturday? Come on, I know more of you did. Come on. Here's the reality is, what did the, what did the governor say not to do? Don't go out to the gas stations and fill your cars up with gas because if you do, it's going to create an, in, in, you know, an inflated view of our gas. Don't do that. You're going to take all the gas and then your regular view of gas, there's going to be a problem. He said don't do it. What did we do? We did it. And that shows, illustrates the rebellion of our heart. When you see a sign that says, do not touch, what's the first thing that you want to do? Touch it. You want, you want to go against those things because those things represent authority and there is a rebellion in our heart against authority. The Bible tells us that we are born enemies of God. We are born rebels to God. And you know what? When we come to Christ, we are reconciled to Him and He becomes our King. But until then... We are enemies. We are arch enemies of the Lord. We see this picture so clearly in the book of Revelation as you read it and you even get to the end of it and you know people know that it's God acting and they say we would rather the mountains fall on us than submit to you. That's the rebellion that can happen in your heart. God wants to tell you this morning, keep rebellion in check in your life. Now, I would say that although all people are rebellious, there are no more rebellious people than those that are religious. What I mean by religious is people that are practicing some belief system, whether it be Christianity or whatnot. People that practice a belief system believe in that system, and they become rebellious to anything outside of that. So if you've ever tried to go to a religious person and tell them what they're doing is wrong, how's that work out for you? Not real good. They are rebellious against anything that is external to their belief system. And as Christians, we can be rebellious not only to uh, you know, those things external, which is fine, we, we want to be in the truth, but we can be rebellious to the truth itself because we're religious, because Sometimes when we read the Bible or we're talking to another brother and sister, our theology doesn't line up with that theology that's being presented. So now we have a problem. Am I going to listen to this or am I rejecting it immediately because that doesn't fit into my religious belief system? We have to be careful as Christians that we don't allow our theology to get in the way of God speaking truth into our lives. And I, and I mean that we come to the word in sincerity, right? We want to know, at the end of the day, if you're reading the Bible and making it say what you want it to say, you're, you're doing it wrong. But if you're reading the Bible and saying, I want to know what he meant by what he said when he said it, that's the correct way to look at Scripture. There is only one interpretation of Scripture. And so if you're having a conversation and you have a different view than somebody else, somebody's wrong, and it might be you. And so the reality of it is that we have to, uh, uh, when we come to Scripture, we have to be humble enough to say, Lord, am I wrong in this? Is there something I'm not seeing? If you don't, you will become just like the Pharisees in this story this morning who are religiously rebelling they have a belief system that they believe in. And Jesus himself is saying, no, you're wrong. 
And he's speaking directly into their lives, right into their heart. And guess what? They miss it. Why? Because they're rebelling against the truth. Listen, Christian, don't do that. We, when we have the Word of God before us, open in our lap, and you are reading it in your daily devotion or whatever it is, this morning, maybe even last week, as you heard the teaching on money and the Lord was saying, hey, what you have is not yours, and, and you kind of ruffled your feathers a little bit. You're like, hold on a second. I worked for this. This is mine. No, God blessed you with all the t- gifts and talents and everything that you have to be able to do that because he wants you to manage his stuff well. So he gifted you that way. It's all him. Maybe that ruffled your feathers a little bit and you're kind of resisting that. The Lord would say to you this morning, hey, don't re- religiously rebel. It's not yours, it's mine. So submit yourself to it. We have to be careful that when we open up God's word, that we come to it with the mindset of, Lord, I want to know what you meant by what you said in this passage, not what I want it to mean. We want to be palms open with the Lord because as we, as we read in our passage this morning, God knows your heart. And do you know what God does uh, to those whom he knows their hearts? He speaks into those areas in their life that they need to change. God oftentimes, as I'm reading the scriptures, will say, Tim, you know, this is really for you. And if I'm not careful, and I, and I kind of have this self-righteous you know, view of myself of, boy, I'm doing pretty good, Lord. I'm really thankful for um, you know, the righteousness that I have. You know, and, and man, I'm really walking strong with you and all. I can become like David when David clearly transgressed against the Lord. And yet, it would take a man named Nathan, the prophet, to come to David. And he would say to David, he would tell him a story about a man that had a, had a goat. And it was his friend, and it was... His provider, you know, provided his milk, and they were friends, and they were companions, and all this stuff. There was a there was a relationship with this little goat, and there was a king in that in that kingdom that had a guest come over, and the king had all this all these different you know uh, different you know sheep and whatnot that he could have chose from. But he said, "Hey, go down to that man's house and grab his. We're going to slay that one and, and offer it to our guests this morning." And David was outraged as Nathan was telling him this story. And Nathan looked him dead in the eyeballs and he said, David, you're that man. You're that man. And you see, David, David wasn't even making the, you know, the, the connection that God might be talking to him. So it had to come to the place where he said, you're that man. And if we come to the scriptures like David did to that story, thinking that we're maybe a little bit better than we are, then we may miss what he wants to say to us. What God wants to say to us is that there is a rebel in you. It exists, and it will exist to the extent that you feed it. You want to be super rebellious? Keep feeding your sin. You'll be super rebellious. You want to fight that, that enemy within you? Pour yourself over the Word and allow the Word to get in you. It will transform your life. The Holy Spirit will empower you to kill the, 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 the enemy within you. That will reduce the rebellion in you. Jesus wants to talk to us about being religiously rebellious this morning. And in our text, we find these Pharisees and scribes who know the word. They know the word. It's like they maybe live in Middle Tennessee where everybody's a Christian. They know the word. They know what to say. They've been indoctrinated. They have their belief system. And they know exactly what they believe. And what Jesus is saying is contrary to what they believe. 
And so when you, when you encounter yourself in that situation, you have, to, you have one of two choices. You can either receive what he's saying or you can rebel against it, and they choose to rebel. And what I love about Jesus is that he doesn't let me can, uh, you know, escape it in my rebellion without telling me I'm rebelling. Like Jesus doesn't, he addresses me right where I'm at. Like Jesus presses in even a little bit further as they respond in rebellion to him. And he says, hold on a second. Let me speak directly into this situation. Like I'm already talking about you, but let me just speak directly into your heart about this issue. That's what God will do, do to you. He won't just let you off the hook and let you rebel. He will... He will prick your heart. He will continue to speak into your heart. Now, you have the choice every step of the way. And the further away you get, maybe the little, little bit smaller the voice becomes, and the further away you get from the Lord, a little smaller the voice becomes. Before you know it, you can't hear Him at all because you've hardened your heart in such rebellion. God warned Israel, don't continue to harden your heart. Don't continue in your rebellion. Come back to me. Turn away from your sin and come back to me. We serve a God who wants to forgive, who's doing everything that he can to make things right between you and him. He's provided the sacrifice. He gives you the faith. He convicts your heart. He's given you the Holy Spirit. He's given all these things, all these tools to work with. Even as a non-believer, all of these things are working in your life and he's drawing to yourself and you're left with a response. And the Lord would say, I desire for you to respond correctly. I desire for you not to respond religiously in rebellion. That's not what I believe. What does the word say? That's what Jesus wants to talk to us about. There are three things that we find in our text this morning that I think determine whether a person is religiously rebellious. The first thing that we find here is that the religiously rebellious reject Jesus' teaching to protect their own belief system. Check it out in verse 14. It says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. Jesus just got done saying this incredible negative illustration about stewardship and the kingdom of God and the investment that should be taking place in every person's life because everything we have is his. And he says, you've got to invest in the future. Be forward thinking. Don't think about the here and the now. Think about the future. And, he, and he, says, he uses this example of this dishonest manager who is so forward-thinking that he's thinking, if I don't act now, my future's sunk. So I better make some real quick moves right now to secure my future. And it says that the rich man commended him for those actions. Commended him not in the dishonesty of what he was doing, but in his shrewdness, in the wisdom that he used to, to come up with that response to his situation. It would be like you saying, you know, I have, you know, this much money in the bank and, you know, I'm not sure what I would do with it. And then, um, and then the Lord say, well, well, here's an opportunity for you to, to, to pour into it. And, and, and you, you, you don't do it. That would be a negative response to what he's saying. He's saying, do it. Pour yourself into that. I don't know where that came from, by the way. Just, even, it's not even making sense in my mind, so whatever. Maybe somebody needed to hear that. But Jesus just got to telling these guys to invest in the future. And, and then he got to the place where it gets a little touchy. Hey, hey, make sure money's not your God, by the way. Make sure, you know, I, I mean, you can say that you're investing in the future, 
but we also got to make sure that um, we're serving the right master, right? That money doesn't become your master. And so he says in verse 13, no one can serve two masters for you will hate the one and love the other. You'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now that ruffled these guys' feathers. They didn't like hearing that and maybe that was you last week. Maybe you're that way this morning. I don't, I don't like the, this money thing in church. Shouldn't, it's like the separation of church and state. Money and church should not go hand in hand and yet God says they do. You know, and we're, we're not a church that talks about money a lot unless it comes up in the Scripture. If it's addressed in the Scripture, we talk about it. Why? Because it's part of God's you know, plan in our life. If there's a stewardship. There's an obedience that we are trained by through this thing called money that God wants. And, and it can become a God to us. Like anything can. It can be material. Mammon doesn't just mean paper wealth. Dollar bills and, or silver is actually, you know, it also means possessions, anything. It could be cars, it could be whatever, your possessions, your houses, whatever. These guys in this, in this culture of what Jesus is talking to had a problem with this because of their belief system. You see, they thought that if somebody was um, being blessed by God, it was because of their righteousness to God. And so if they had a lot, it was obvious because they were righteous. It was obvious because they were doing so well for the Lord that the Lord was dumping blessings. And Jesus says, well, actually, it could just be that that's your God. It, it might not have anything to do with your, your um, obedience to me. It might just be that that's your God. So we look on the external and go, man, the Lord must be really blessing that that, that, that church that has 50,000 people in it. Wow, look at how... It, it might be that God's doing that, or it could be that, you know, maybe they've created a program to draw people. You don't know at the end of the day, but God knows the heart. And He speaks right into these people's hearts. We cannot be fooled by the external in other people's lives and in our own lives. We have to be real. And Jesus is just being real here. He says, listen, it is possible to think that you're serving God and to see these external blessings in your life and, 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 and say that's the fruit of my you know, obedience to God and be completely on the other side of the page and be totally disobedient to Him. It is possible to do that because there is a king in this kingdom that has possessions and power and has the ability to bless wealth and and, and, you know, I mean, even in Psalm 72, the psalmist says, I see the prosperity of the wicked, and it almost caused me to slip. Like, I, I don't get why people are being, you know, people are blessed, and I see God's people have nothing. I, I don't get that, God. If you're in control of everything, why is that the way it is? And God says, because I have a plan, and you need to be okay with that plan whether you have a lot or whether you don't. You understand that I'm in control and I'm at work doing something, so let me do it. And stop being critical of my plan. The psalmist said, I almost slipped. And, and I think that probably if we're honest with each other, we almost slip at times too when we see the wickedness of the world and we think like, well, why is that guy getting blessed, man? He's not serving God, but look at me. Look at the, things, look at the sacrifices I'm making for you, Lord. And we turn it on ourselves. And maybe that's the whole point of the Lord's trying to show you. Hey, your belief system is not <laughs> accurate. You need to change your belief system because 
contrary to popular Christian belief, it's not about you. It's about him. It's not about your comfort and ease and pleasure and your wealth and prosperity or any of that. It's about his plan in your life. And so the quicker we become on board with that and we get content with where he has us, the better we will be satisfied in him, the more content we will be in our lives. These guys have a major problem with Jesus because they have a conflict in their theology. They, 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 they're thinking, does this guy not, this guy doesn't understand wealth, he has nothing. Like, I want to listen to a dentist that has really bad teeth, or I want to go to a doctor and try and figure out how to lose weight when he's way overweight. Like, I want to listen to somebody that knows what they're talking about because they've done it in their own life. Oh, we're, I'm, I'm taking this financial debt course, you know, with, with Tori here and financial freedom thing, you know. And, and, and you know, you, you stand up there and you're just like, you know, if, if Dave Ramsey had not done this himself, I wouldn't listen to a thing he said. I wouldn't listen to somebody who's never done that before. And yet, these guys think Jesus has nothing. That's what's funny. Jesus has everything. He's a steward of all things. All things belong to him. He created everything. Their view is incorrect. Their theology is incorrect. Their understanding of who Jesus is is not right. And all of that is blinding them to the truth that is staring them in the face of the reality that the problem is not what Jesus is saying. The problem is in their belief. The problem is in their belief. They held fast to Deuteronomy chapter 8, 28, verse 1 through 6. It says this, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commands that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations in the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall be shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the field blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle and increase of your herds and the young of your flock blessed shall be the basket and your kneading bowl blessed shall be when you come in and blessed you will be when you go out it's an awesome verse lots of promises in that verse what can happen like what happened with these pharisees is they can gloss over the part that says, if you obey me, and they can say, well, I am obeying him. That's why I am where I am. No, that's not. In fact, Jesus will tell them later, you don't obey me at all. In fact, it's all about you. You're so contrary to the word of God that you, you, you've made it all about your own traditions. And, and, and the reality is that we can sometimes take some of these conditional promises that are in the Bible and we can apply them to our lives, we could say, well, yeah, this is clearly why this is happening in my life, and it may not be. But we're proclaiming the, the promise like they were. Know yourself. Paul says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Know your heart. Know your struggle. Know the pride that exists in your heart. Know where you're weak. Know where you're strong. Look at yourself. Evaluate yourself so that you can be real. Because God can't do anything with somebody who is blind to themselves, that doesn't want to hear, that doesn't want to see. He won't make you see and he won't make you hear. That's why we've got to constantly be in this place where we're saying, Lord, 
I want to be, I am bare naked before you, but help me to be bare naked before myself. Help me to see myself as I really am. Money could be your master, perhaps. And so what happens when they are hit with this truth that is hitting so close to home, they do what anybody else would do. They ridicule Jesus. They ridicule the person that's presenting the truth, right? Literally, the word means they turn their noses up at them. Like you know what you're talking about. You, you know, there's an arrogance here. There's such a pride in the way that they respond to Jesus here. It's ridiculous. Like Jesus himself, they've seen him do all these different things. And they still think he's operating in the power of the devil. I mean, how much more blinded could you be? Jesus himself standing before you. presented. He's done all these different things and you're still blinded by your own pride. That's what happens when you're religious. Religious people are blinded by their pride. Take a look at the Reformation. You see that. Martin Luther nails the 95th thesis on the, on the wall of a, a church, on the door of a church in Wittenberg, Germany in 1517. And the response of that is, we're going to kill you. Because he's addressing not just one or two, but 95 different things in the Catholic church that are contrary to Scripture. As a teacher in the Catholic church, as a professor in the Catholic you know, faith, he addresses these issues from the Scripture and they want to kill him. What is that? It's called pride in, the, in, in religion and not in the Lord himself. If you've ever talked to somebody, I, have, I was having a conversation with somebody about Catholicism the other day. And I was, I was telling them, you know, there, there's, there's different things that, you know, I mean, hey, we can get on the same page. We both believe in Jesus. Awesome. That's great. You know, I believe that, you know, Jesus, you, you know, this person happens to believe that Jesus is the only way. He happens to believe that Jesus, that it's not their works contributing whatsoever to that. There are Catholics that are saved, believe it or not, but there are. But there are some that aren't. Many of them aren't because they don't, they have no relationship with God. Their relationship with God is through a man. It's called the priest. And they confess their sins to the priest. And the priest is the mediator between man and God. But the Bible says something different. The Bible says there's one mediator between man and God. And it's the Christ Jesus. He's the mediator. I was, I was talking to this person and I said, yeah, but, but that doesn't make sense, does it? Because the Bible says that we, sh we shouldn't do that because we have one mediator, right? Well, 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 well yeah, you know, whatever. Um. We still think that. Okay, well, well, what about the passage that Jesus said, you should call no man father because you have one father in Matthew chapter 20, 23, verse 9. And call no man your father on earth for you have one father who is in heaven. Here's what I was doing is addressing a religious person that wasn't willing to hear truth. They were a religiously rebellious person because they had their belief system and they wanted to stay there. But listen, I don't want to stay in my belief system. I want to stay in his belief system. I don't want to be in my truth. I want to be in his truth. And so if, if, we, if we're not careful, we can slip into that as Christians even. These, th this person 
basically we ended up, you know, basically I don't know what I'm talking about because I didn't go to Bible college and, you know, I mean, if you look up the hundreds of, you know, thousands of years of, you know, church history and, and it all started with Catholics and that's the whole basis of why I'm going to believe contrary to Scripture what Jesus said himself even, but, but because I believe in that system. You're putting your faith in a, a religion and not in Jesus Christ. And that is, will lead you faster to hell than anything. Jesus told the Pharisees, you make disciples of the devil. You are leading people to hell. You are making disciples that are going to hell. And you don't even know it. We have to be willing to adapt what the scriptures say. These guys aren't willing. They, they, they scoff at Jesus. They, they turn their nose up at him. They are religiously rebelling. The second thing that we find in the scripture here is that re religious uh, rebellion exists when, when those who are, are religious present themselves as something that they are not. Look at verse 15. And he said to them, Jesus is, by the way, not even addressing, they haven't talked to him at all. The scripture doesn't indicate at all that they've said a word. They just, it's actions. It's the way that he's, he, it's their body language toward him. They, he, they've turned their, their, their nose up towards him like, whatever, this guy has no idea what he's talking about. And then he just said to them, like Jesus perceived where they were, and he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Jesus is saying, according to verse 13, that you can't serve God in money, and the fact that they turned their noses up towards him, you know, with the idea that he has no idea about what he's talking with, then he presses further. And he continues to address the Pharisees at the heart level. And I love that about God. Because he does that with me. He doesn't let me be superficial with him. And I love that. I don't want to be superficial with God. I want to be real with the Lord. And he won't let me be that way either. Even if I want to. He'll press in and he will speak right into my heart. What, what he's saying is, is here is that, you know, you, you are those who justify yourselves before men. You care about one thing, and that's looking good before man. That's all you care about. There are people in our culture, in our world today, that care about how they appear before man religiously. Like, like they don't care about God, per se, but they care about their image before man. And so they darken the door of a church, and they sit in a, in a chair or a pew or whatever, and they're, they're, they're there only for perception so that people look at them and go, oh, well, he's a, you know, he, he's, one, he's a person that is, you know, cultured, you know, he, he does it all, man. I mean, he's, he's in the, he's a business person, he's a, he goes to church, you know, he's, a, he's, he's this and that and whatever, you know, for whatever reason, I don't know why people do it, but they do it. They want to appear well before men. So, I'll tell you what, sometimes uh, you know, there are vultures in the church and they come into the church and they have an agenda and, and it's about maybe you getting involved in their business or getting them trying to get some business from you. There are guys that come into churches looking for girls and they prey on them. All kinds of weird stuff. But it's, it's to have this perception that I am something that I'm not. They're presenting themselves as something that they are not. And that's what Jesus says these religious leaders are doing. They're presenting themselves as righteous and they are not. As justified. The word justify means just as if I hadn't sinned. It, it literally it, it is the idea that happens on the cross when a, when a Christian comes to Christ and they lay their life down at the cross and they say, Lord, I'm yours. 
what happens is there's justification that's been made by the blood of Jesus Christ where not, your sin is not just covered, but your sin is removed. Like completely. The old, old covenant, it simply covered your sin. But the new covenant, the blood of Jesus Christ, it removes your sin completely. You are justified before God. It's, it's called imputed righteousness. Jesus himself takes his righteousness and puts it on you. So now God sees you as he sees his son. He sees you as perfect. You're justified. These guys are walking around before men like they're perfect. Before God. And Jesus says, whoa, you're not. God sees your heart. You're not perfect. You're not even close to perfect. The Bible tells us that there is one way to be righteous. Always has been and always will be. It's by faith that you are made righteous. It has nothing to do with your external works. Your external works are the evidence that you have put your faith in Jesus Christ who removes your sin and now you have external fruit in your life. That is the way it works. But these guys are saying, they're doing all these external things to, to make themselves appear righteous. But Jesus says, no, you're not. It's, it's only by faith. That's what Paul said about Abraham way back when. Abraham was not righteous before God because of anything that he did except for believe. It was simply by his faith. Paul wrote in Galatians 3, 6, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Faith is how we become righteous before God, not works. These Pharisees were presenting themselves as something that they are not righteous. They were doing all kinds of different things to proclaim that. They would, they would stop and... This, you know, as they were giving alms to the poor and they would ring a bell so everybody could see what they were doing. Hey, look at how generous I am. They would bring their tithe in front of everybody to the box and dump their loads of cash onto the tithe box and say, look at how generous I am. But, but also at the same time, look at the wealth that God has bestowed upon me because I am so righteous. All external. All external. You know how God sees them? Jesus gives us a very accurate picture in Matthew chapter 23. You can read the whole chapter later. I'm just going to read a few verses. Matthew 23, 22 through 7 says, The scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do not do and observe what they tell you to do. Or, or, so do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do. He's saying they have positionally some authority as leaders, but don't, don't act as they act. Don't do their works, for they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay, lay them on the uh, people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. The phylactery is a wooden box that they would put on their arm, on their head, and they would put scriptures in it, and they would make them big because they, had, they were just so knowledgeable of the scriptures that they had so many packed in there, you know, so tight that they had to make them bigger, you know. And so they would walk around with these big old things on their head. If you go to Jerusalem today, you'll see phylacteries. You'll see people wearing them with leather bands and all of that because it's an outward expression. And, they're, and they're the idea that, you know, again, taking something God said in the Old Testament and taking it to the point of, of making it an external thing. And so... They would have the phylacteries. They would have their fringes and long robes. They loved the places of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and they, called rab and they loved being called rabbi by others. 
They love presenting themselves before man as something that they are not. Righteous. And Jesus addresses their heart. He addresses them right, right where, he hits them right where they need to be hit. He goes on to say, the wealth that you think is an outward sign of God's approval in your life is actually abomination to him. So God seeing your heart, seeing your external actions, and then seeing your heart matching that up says, man, that's an abomination to me. I don't care what the act is. You can help a little old lady across the street, but if you're doing it to be seen by men, it's an abomination to God. Like he's saying, the motive matters. Like why you're doing what you're doing. It matters. If you want to be made righteous before man, and that's why you're doing what you're doing, that is an abomination before the Lord. The religiously rebellious present themselves as something that they are not, holy and righteous and good, and the Lord won't stand for that. He exposes them for who they really are, self-righteous religious rebels. And he'll do that to you and I if he needs to. I always want to remember who I am. And I think Greg Laurie sums it up so well that, that I, I can't come up with anything that even matches that. I'm a beggar trying to show another beggar where to get some bread. That's who I am. I'm a beggar, and you are too. We're beggars showing other beggars where to get bread. Nothing special about me except for the Jesus in me. I remember another pastor guy that I really, really um, like. His name's Bob Caldwell from Calvary Chapel, um, Boise, Idaho. I said, Bob, how you doing, man? He's, oh, I'm doing really good, thanks. And, and I, uh, I, was, I was just, I talked to him and, and he said, you know, the only thing I got going for me is the Lord. The only thing I got going for me is the Lord. I'm not special. You see, these guys think they're special. God says, don't think you're special. You are special in my eyes. He loves you. He, he wants to pour out his blessings upon you, but stay humble. Remember who you are. And that will help you not present yourself as something that you're not. Listen, if the church would be real, then maybe the world would look at us and go, well, maybe there is something to that. But, you know, the perception of a Christian, and even I had this, was they're perfect, right? That, they're, supposed to, that, that, that they're, they're perfect. And a lot of it has to do with the way that we present ourselves. Like, if you know, some of it is not, though. Sometimes it's just purely people's perception of you, and you can't change that. You've you got to be who you are. Sometimes people think that you're high and mighty or whatever because you stand for the Lord. Well, that's their issue, right? But sometimes you are doing that. So, you know, know your heart. Be careful. Thirdly, he, he goes on to tell us, the religiously rebellious attempt to force their way into the kingdom, listen, under the wrong system. He goes on, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one God of the law to become void. Now, he is addressing... The, the righteousness of these, what the, how these guys appear righteous before man, right? The law. He's bringing up the law now. He's saying, okay, I've addressed you at the heart level. I've talked about your God, money. You are lovers of money. That, there's no question about that. I've tried to address you on this. Now, let's talk about your righteousness. Let's talk about the law, okay? And so he brings up this idea that the law and the prophets were until John. Until John the Baptist showed up, you know, there were 400 years between the last prophet and John himself. God was not speaking to Israel. 
because they were so rebellious in their hearts, they weren't turning to him, and so there was no prophet in the land. But when John came, he was the last of the prophets. And interesting enough, he was the first of those to propagate the kingdom of God. He was a transitionary prophet. He was the prophet, like, like he was the prophet of prophets. Like if, if you were a prophet, you would be like, man, I want to be like this guy that's being prophesied in the Old Testament, in Isaiah and stuff. He want, he's going to be the guy that gets to present the, 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 the Messiah to the world. I want to be that guy, the voice in the wilderness. You know, I want to be that guy. It's so awesome to be that guy. John was that guy. But John was also the very first person to preach the, the kingdom of God. As he, rem remember, he would, he would bring to remembrance the promise that God gave in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where he said he was going to bring a Savior. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. But John would say every time he saw Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The gospel is in that man right there. Put your faith in him. And, and, and John was pointing people to Jesus. Do you realize that the law and the prophets were pointing people to Jesus too? John's message didn't change. That, that had been the message. But John got to be the guy to do it. He got to be the, be the guy there to, 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 to basically pass the baton from the law and prophets, from the old covenant to the new covenant. You got to be that guy. And by the way, he was also Jesus' cousin. Is that kind of cool? Like, who gets to say, I was Jesus' cousin on earth? But, like, I mean, he, he, forever in eternity, he's going to say, yeah, I was Jesus' cousin. You know, no big deal. I got to be Jesus. I got to play Jesus' cousin, man. It was awesome. But he had a privileged place here that he was able to um, do that. Now, what Jesus is trying to help them understand is that something's changing. The view of uh, the, the, their relationship with the law is going to change. It's not going to be the same. The law was always meant to be a real revealer of sin. It was never meant to be a system of salvation. So it would reveal the sin of man. That was, that's its point. Paul says it's a tutor that brings us to Christ. It's something that examines and it focuses in on your heart and it reveals that, that darkness in your heart. And, and so Paul, Paul said, you know, in, in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, for I, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. So the law was meant to shine into our heart the darkness that exists there. It was meant to show us that we need a Savior. And then John the Baptist would point to Jesus and say, there he is right there. The Messiah has come. It's a picture. It's a picture of, um, that they had long been waiting for. The Old Testament had been painting this picture through the sacrificial system, through the prophets, that there was a Savior coming. And let me tell you something. I'm so excited one of the things that I look forward to in the eternity is in the, in the millennial reign, in the millennial kingdom, when Jesus is reigning and ruling on earth physically. We will be there with him. We will be you know, given different things to do and whatnot. But what will be really cool is there will be a temple. Ezekiel talks about it. There will be a functioning, sacrificial temple. Even though Jesus exists and he's bearing the wounds of the cross, which is our salvation, faith in that, the sacrificial system will exist in the, in the millennial reign and it will, we, Jesus will be pointing back towards what he already did. The sacrificial system in this day is pointing towards what Jesus will do. But in the millennial reign, we'll get to see how it all, the picture that it painted of Jesus, it was all pointing to Jesus. It is an incredible 
uh, study, if you get your ch a chance to go through the Old Testament, look at the tabernacle itself, the way it's laid out. It, it is pictured in a cross. Different places where things are in the tabernacle, where the wounds of Jesus were. This is not coincidental. This is not coincidental. The, the way that they, they even went into the temple, all of these things point to Jesus. And you know what? We can, we can study them today and we can see a, a little bit of, of how that all works. But man, when we get to heaven, when we, when we come back with Jesus in the millennial reign, we'll see it fully functioning and totally get it. Is that going to be awesome? I can't wait. That's one of the things I can't wait to see. How does all that work together, Lord? Jesus has been painting that picture and now it's here. He says that, that Jesus goes on to say here that, that this kingdom is one that we force our way into. What does that mean? Force our way into? It means it takes effort to know Jesus. People have to come to him. They have to follow him. And in order to do that, they have to let go of everything else that they believe. In order to come to Jesus, you have to let go of your stuff, your good works, your righteousness, right? Tell me that's not a struggle. Because before I became a Christian and I was not raised in the church, I had this idea, this belief system that as long as I was good enough, as long as I did good things, that I would stand right before God. In order for me to come to Christ, I had to recognize that that belief system is false and it is not true and that Jesus is the only way to the Father. And that is difficult. It's difficult to do. MacArthur said it this way. He said, anyone who comes into the kingdom realizes it's a struggle. It's hard. It's difficult. And I think the way to understand this is Jesus is simply pointing out the door is open. The gospel of the kingdom of God is being preached and it takes a magnificent effort for you to come into his kingdom. This is not just a human work, but there are components that involve the human will. It never happens apart from the human will, and the price is profound. It costs you everything. He goes on to say um, here, look, the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the riffraff, the, the social scum, they're coming into the kingdom, and they're making the effort, the struggle that's so difficult, it takes the force of will to make that commitment. That you won't make, he says. Forcing our way in, it's tough. It's hard. But you force your way. You force your way down on your knees at the cross and commit your life to him. It's dying to self. And Jesus goes on here to say that he wants us to understand our relationship with the law, that the law is still intact. It still exists. Like, he didn't remove the law. He said it'd be more difficult for the heaven and earth to pass away than for any one even dot or tittle to be taken away from the law, right? For it to be void. Literally, he's telling us that, that, that we can't come to God through that system. The law was never a system of salvation, but it's a system of um, us revealing our sin, revealing who we are before him. It is still intact, though. It is the standard. It's no longer, you know, it's never been a system, but it is a standard. And that's how we have to look at the law. As a Christian, you might think, well, oh, Jesus did it all for me, so I don't have to be honor my father and mother. Yeah, you do. The, that's the standard. Like, like, he paid the price 
for you to be able to do that. Like he, he died for you to make you right because that is the standard. That doesn't mean you live apart from the standard now. Not legalistically. But that is the standard. And we desire to glorify him through our lifestyle which will lead us right back to the very things that he said we're supposed to do. And so I get to do these things now because my relationship has changed towards the law. It, the, the law is not void contrary to popular Christian belief. It's not been removed. It still exists. It's our standard. And that's what we, 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 tr that's our, that's what we try and go by. And he illustrates this now. He's going to illustrate the law in a, in a, to try and once again get their attention. And it seems like he's totally going off track here. Maybe Luke's like bringing something into this, to this conversation that wasn't there or something. But he says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. So you think like, is Luke taking a, a rabbit trail here? Is Jesus just inserting this? Like where did this come from? How does this relate to anything about what he's talking about? But being a good steward, about, you know, using your, investing in the future for your money and all these kind of things. Now all of a sudden it's like a teaching on, on, uh, on marriage? No, it's not. This is not a teaching on marriage. And in fact, if you take this as a teaching on marriage, you completely miss it. This is not what, he's not talking about marriage. What he's talking about is the law. He's talking, he's addressing an issue in these religious rebels that they were dealing with in their day, in their culture, that they would just freely divorce and just get remarried and it was no big deal. And they thought they were righteous. That's why he said it. He said, you guys have this false perception of righteousness. Let's just talk about marriage for a second. Okay, you guys are writing divorce certificates because your wife burned her breakfast. You found a loophole, right? Because the law has a lot of loopholes. Uh, God didn't button it all up or anything. And so, you know, you have Hillai and Shimei, these two different Jewish religious guys that are interpreting the law for you. So you're giving it on a little silver platter that says, oh, you can do this and you can do that. And so part of their belief system was that, you know, one of them, if, if your wife literally burned your breakfast, you could divorce her. It was, it was justified by the law. It's ridiculous. The other one would say, if I saw somebody, if you saw a woman more beautiful in the, um, in the public square, you could divorce your wife and, and marry her if you want. Now, who does that sound like it's surrounding? Isn't that kind of man-centered? Totally man-centered. And, and this is the way these guys, these righteous dudes were living. And so Jesus says, once again, because I'm not a respecter of your pride... I'm going to just, just zone right into where you guys are failing huge in the law to reveal to you that you're not so righteous. And that's why he said what he said. Now, there's truth in what he's saying. The reality is, you know, when you get married, there's a covenant that exists between you and that person and God. And like God hates divorce. The Bible says that. And so, you know, we as believers, particularly in the scriptures, you know, we want, to, we want to take that covenant seriously. We don't just flippantly go into marriage and go out of marriage and, and it's no big deal. It is a big deal to the Lord. He cares about it. Now, if you've been here and you've been divorced, you've been remarried or whatever the case might be, God is not condemning you. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The reality is we turn to the Lord, we say, Father, you know, whether you're a believer or not. I think sometimes the church has these standards. Well, if you've been divorced, you can never serve in a you know office in the church really is that what the gospel is all about that sounds like it's about being perfect and the, if that's the case i'm not qualified 
Even though I've never been divorced, I'm not qualified in other areas in my life. The reality is we are not perfect people. If you've been married, you've been divorced, you've been remarried again, here's the reality. You take that before the Lord and you say, Lord, if you've never done that, you, you, you take that before the Lord. You repent of that and then you stay committed where you are. Don't do it again. Jesus told the, um, the, the, the adulterous woman, go and sin no more. Your sins are forgiven. You go and sin no more. That's the reality. Again, I have to say that because it, it's, it's right there. But that's not the context of what Jesus is talking about. He's using this as an example to show these self-righteous religious rebe rebels that they are not who they say they are. They are presenting themselves as something else. And they are trying to, they are trying to reach heaven through the old system when, it do, when they can't do that. There is no old system. Uh, you know, it, it all pointed to Jesus in the new covenant. Uh, you know, all the saints before that, that were operating in the sacrificial system, system of that day were, were going through it with the idea of knowing that the new covenant was coming, that Jesus Christ would be the Lamb of God for them. Don't go backwards. Don't be like these guys. Don't, don't try and stand in your own righteousness. Don't become legalistic in your, in your walk with the Lord where, oh, I, I didn't read my Bible today, so God, I don't have favor with God. And then you, you throw yourself just into a whirlwind. Don't do that. Be real with God. Be honest with God. Be open with the Lord. And when you approach the Scripture, say, God, I want to know what you meant by what you said in this passage. If I'm wrong, help me see that. That's what he wants you to know. Do not be religiously rebellious. Do not let your own belief system trump the teachings of the Word of God. When you come to Scripture, you have to come with an open heart with the idea that God may change your doctrine as you read it. And He has changed my doctrine at times. As I'm reading things, I'm like, oh, I have that wrong. Oh. Oh. Cool. I just learned something new. Wow, awesome. And, and as I come to the Lord every time, He shows me something new. Maybe shows something that I'm an errand. It's like, oh, Tim, come on. And you know what? I hope that's how you approach the Scriptures. And I hope that's how, you, I hope you want a pastor that approaches the Scriptures like that. That's, that, that, that. That I'm not so prideful as if to know, like I know. Listen, I'm in the same journey you are, just trying to make my way till he comes back to get us. And I don't want to be prideful about that, man. That would, that would push me further away from the Lord. I want to press into him. The only way to press into him is to be real with him. So be real with him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word and just for um, revealing to us, Lord, the religious rebel that lives within us. That when we are confronted with the truth, Lord, that we are faced with a response of either re receiving or rejecting what you're saying. And it may be contrary to what we believe. But Father, I pray that you would help us to realize that as we are on this journey of faith, that, Lord, there is more to reveal. That as we continue to get to know you, our ideas of you may change. The way that we see you work in the world may change. Our heart's desire, Father, is to see this world and to see ourselves and to see those around us exactly the way that you see them. We literally want to become you, Lord. And so we know that the only way that we can do that is through surrender 
and through being genuine with you. And so we pray this morning, God, for every one of us in this room today, that we would just be real and genuine with you, particularly in the context of what we're talking about with our finances, with our wealth, the things that you've given us. That we would be forward thinkers and investors in the future, Lord. That we wouldn't be all about us. Man-centered gospel, man-centered um, you know, stewardship, where it's all about our personal uh, you know, comfort and ease. But Lord, help us to invest in the future. We know that you don't necessarily need what we have, God, but it's an obedience thing that trains our heart to be totally and completely uh, believe, believing in you, Lord. Just totally, I can't think of the word, but it's all about you, Lord. I pray that you'd help us today as believers standing here today that our hearts would just be surrendered in that way. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And I pray, Lord, for anyone that, that is struggling with, with uh, maybe being religious, trying to relate to you on their own righteousness, that you help them to see that Jesus is the only way. Father, there would be a time of prayer after the service, and if anyone wants to come forward and receive Christ or wants to pray about some things in their lives, Lord, that we make that time available today after, after this last song. And so, Lord, just have your way by your spirit, we pray. We thank you, God, and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.